this morning. As I say every week, thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. You are the church. Glad that you're here. Um, as Jason mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, uh, you picked a good Sunday to come check things out. We are starting a new sermon series this morning, one that's going to carry us right up to the season of Advent, a series entitled The Way of the King which is essentially a study of the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, I get the, the blessing of preaching and expounding the greatest sermon ever preached, which will be really interesting over the next few months. Uh, one of the lengthiest, if not the lengthiest, section of uninterrupted red-letter text in all of the Bible, including things that have shaped not only the church, but the very culture in which we live. If you think about it, I don't know about you, but um, oftentimes I hear people, both Christian and non-Christian alike, use the language of turning the other cheek, or loving your enemies, or judging not lest you be judged, or doing to others what you wish that others would do to you. Those aren't fortune cookie statements spoken by a man who is nothing more than a good moral teacher and philosopher, though some would believe that to be all that Jesus was. Those are sermon notes from the greatest sermon ever preached. We're gonna study a sermon manuscript essentially over the next few months, a sermon that should we criticize will prove us to be the ones in the wrong. If Jesus is nothing more than a, a good moral teacher and philosopher, then we can hang on to the red letter statements that we like and, and simply discard the rest of it. And there have been movements that have made it their aim to do that, that very thing, the Jesus Seminar, the Jesus Movement being one of those. But if Jesus is actually who, who he claimed to be in the scriptures, whatever he says rings forth with the resounding authority of the divine. You have heard it was said, but I say to you, but I say to you. It's Jesus who, who declares, as we'll see when we get into this series, that our fate lies in whether or not we're known by him. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Jesus speaks with the, the authority of the divine, and, and it's pretty jarring at times, as we're going to see. The declaration that, that we can't have Jesus as Savior without having Jesus as King, and we cannot have Jesus as King without having Jesus as Savior who reconciles us into his kingdom under his kingship. There are a lot of people in, in evangelical circles who are just fine with a life-enhancing Jesus, but not so much a life-altering Jesus, which is why, and this is crazy to think about, which is why I would dare say that there may be more people who walk away from Christianity or maybe this church through this series than would be tempted to walk away through the series on Ecclesiastes. It's kind of crazy to think about, right? All that pessimism over the course of the summer and that this series might be the one that would cause people to turn away. You see Jesus in the gospel say, will, will you leave me too, to the disciples, to the 12? And, and that could be a possibility for us. Unless, going back to last week, if you were here, if you listened to that podcast that I blasted via email this week, unless we know something of the expulsive power of a new affection, a face-to-face -face encounter with the supreme worth of God in Jesus Christ and awakening to the supreme beauty of the one doing the preaching, and by that I don't mean me, but rather the one whose sermon manuscript we're about to study for the next few months. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, Matthew chapter four, verse 17. That's where uh, we'll be on the front end. We're gonna eventually make our way through chapter five, verse two, by the time all's said and done. Called a little bit of an audible by way of the, the directing work of the Holy Spirit this week. We were originally gonna work through Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12. 
And by the time all was said and done, uh, I realized we can't make it past verse two. And, and that'll be really good for us because I think it'll frame this entire series coming out of this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, use it this morning uh, during your time with us. Take it with you if you don't have a Bible, uh, you don't own one, or maybe the one that you do own is, is a difficult translation to track with. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and, and we'll dive in and get to work on this series Holy Spirit, we, we desperately need your help this morning and in the, the weeks, the months to come as we dive into this greatest sermon ever preached. I think if we're honest, there are parts of you, Jesus, and, and your, your words that we find in red letters in our Bibles that we like, and there are parts that we don't like. For those of us who like the social justice Jesus, perhaps we'll be frustrated with the call to purity in certain aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. For those of us who love holiness, perhaps we'll be frustrated uh, with some of the things that we see in terms of you, Jesus, moving toward uncleanness and brokenness in the, in the community. This, this series as we sit with your red letter words in Matthew chapters five through seven, at some point should be jarring for every one of us. And the, that jarring would be for your glory and would be for our good and our joy. And so I pray that we feel that by the power and work of your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, would you not allow us to uh, work through this glorious and great sermon over the next three months and somehow walk away unchanged by it. But, but rather, would you powerfully rattle us so that we might find ourselves in greater glad submission to the one true king and his kingdom, turning from the kingdom of this world. It's in that king's name, King Jesus, I pray. Amen. So if you're familiar with Israel's History. You know that the Old Testament ends lacking resolution. I've used the example before. It's like the movie The Breakup. I can't stand that movie because it ends on like a minor chord. You're, you're longing for like some sort of relational resolution between uh, the two people that make up this, this couple, Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn's character, and yet you don't get it. There are songs that end that way, that end hanging on a minor chord rather than a major note that, that drive us nuts at times. That's the Old Testament. Everything goes dark for about 400 years. There's no prophet that speaks on behalf of God. There's no scripture recorded for the better part of four centuries. And, and then the next record that we have in terms of divine revelation is the story of Jesus, story that Matthew intends to show is a continuation of the story of the Old Testament. And so Matthew begins with a genealogy right there at the beginning of chapter one, showing that Jesus is from the messianic line of King David, and that he's also a son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to the nations. From there, Matthew shows us a number of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the birth and early life of Jesus, the most wondrous, of course, being the virgin birth, which is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. In addition, Matthew goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the greater Moses, having to come out of Egypt like Moses, having passed through the waters, not of the Red Sea, but the Jordan River through baptism, 
having spent not 40 years, but 40 days in the wilderness, ascending a mountain, as we'll see by the time we get to the end of this morning's text, but not to receive the law, but rather to expound it. He's the one who would bring about the liberation of his people, just like Moses, yet not from Egypt, but the greater shackles of sin and death. As the the curtain closes on chapter four, Jesus has been preaching and teaching in the Jewish synagogues, and along with his preaching and teaching, he's been healing people of diseases and affliction and driving out demons. And as you can imagine, he's starting to draw a crowd, an incredibly diverse crowd, people from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, from beyond the Jordan, both Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious, so that as we pick up the story in Matthew chapter five, verse one, we're told, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. That's, that's not something to just bypass quickly, that Jesus ascended a mountain in Matthew chapter five is not some insignificant detail. In, in going up the mountain, Jesus is making a statement about who he is. He's saying to the crowd that in the same way that God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, you're meeting with God today. But, but it's not just an affirmation of Jesus's deity. Matthew tells us that Jesus went up the mountain. At Mount Sinai, the Lord descended upon the mountain, which is a way of saying that that God is transcendent. He's holy other. He has to stoop down in order to, to interact with his creation. Here, Jesus ascends the mountain, revealing his humanity because he's already stooped down and taking on human flesh. He's not only fully God, he's fully man, the God man. And while at Mount Sinai, people were told to keep their distance, here, people are welcome to draw near to God clothed in flesh. So I would say it this way, for the next three months, you're invited to draw near to Jesus, to sit at the feet of the greatest preacher in human history. We're told as we continue to read verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Sitting down was customary for rabbis in Jesus' day. He was getting ready to teach the people, setting up his lectern, so to speak. God's on the scene after 400 years of going dark in this moment, 400 years of silence, and he's setting up his classroom. Let me ask you, what would you expect if you had not sat with Matthew's gospel account before, and perhaps you haven't, what would you expect Jesus to say? What, what words would you expect to come forth from his mouth? Perhaps if you bring a religious paradigm to the table, maybe it's clean up your act and you can have a relationship with God. If you come from a social justice perspective, perhaps it would, it would be, let's get after saving the world. Let's, let's get after the least and the lost and the outcast and, and nothing more than that. The answer to that question, what would you expect Jesus to say, will tell you a lot about who you believe Jesus to be. I wanna come back to to chapter four for a second as a way of framing this series. I mentioned calling an audible midway through this week and and here's where the audible comes into play. I think this can be incredibly helpful in helping us to get the right mindset for the next few months as we sit with these red letter words that that ring with what I believe to be resounding authority. And in fact, uh, the people who sat at the feet of Jesus would say so much at the end of chapter seven. He's one who spoke with authority that was different from the scribes. Coming back to Chapter four, verse 17. Notice the the first words that Jesus declares at the beginning of his public ministry. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. there's There's a theme, there's a word, there's a phrase that shows up over 50 times in the book of Matthew. That theme, that word, that phrase being 
the kingdom. The message that Jesus made central to his ministry is undeniably the kingdom. His preaching and teaching declare and point to the kingdom. His parables talk about and point to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like dot, 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 many of Jesus' parables. His miracles point to the nature of the kingdom. If we think of Jesus apart from the kingdom, we're missing something of who Jesus is and what he's ultimately about. Which may bring up a question for you. You may be wondering, well, what does it mean for Jesus to show up and to declare that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That, that phrase, at hand, pretty critical in, in understanding the answer to that question. In the original language, that phrase, in the Greek, it's the word engizo. It's a perfect tense verb, meaning that it's defined as a completed action producing ongoing effects. So that the kingdom at hand means the kingdom has drawn near, completed action. It's been inaugurated in the coming of the king, Jesus, stepping onto the scene of human history, and yet it's ongoing as it moves toward its consummation in the return, the second coming of the king to set all things right. This idea of kingdom, of ruling and reigning, this is not the first time we see this in the Bible, nor is the first time we see it when Israel establishes a monarchy. It goes back to the dawn of creation, actually. Going back to the creation story, if you remember, particularly if you were around maybe a couple years ago when we went through the series entitled The Story, Eden, it's not just a garden. Eden was a temple of sorts. It was a garden sanctuary, you might say. Adam was put in the garden, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, to work it and keep it. That's priestly Levite language. Adam was to, to guard the sanctuary of God, you might say, as the first priest in human history. But God also commanded Adam and Eve to do what? To exercise dominion over all of creation, right? To fill the earth and subdue it. That's kingly language. Man was created to, to rule over creation, to cultivate creation for the, the glory of the greater king of creation. In other words, God created human beings to function as priest kings, the trouble, as many of us know, Genesis 3, didn't take long in the Bible for everything to come unraveled, right? The trouble is that God's first king and queen of creation rebelled against the greater king, choosing a life of, of judicial autonomy, a life of self-determination. And out of that rebellion, as we know, the kingdom of this world was established, a world come unraveled. What was God's response as you continue to read the Old Testament? It was to, to free a new people for himself, liberating them from the kingdom of this world, right? The story of the Exodus. God establishing himself as the liberating king of his people, Israel, bringing them under the reign of his kingship, showing them how to live under his reign in the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. As the story goes, Israel, like Adam, failed to live in glad submission to the king, and thus you have the themes of judgment and exile throughout the Old Testament, like our first parents in the garden. And so when you, when you get to the prophets of the Old Testament, you begin to see this hope coming out of exile, coming out of judgment. You see this hope of God someday establishing his reign over this broken humanity. One example, very famous example of that, Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10, which says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, listen to this kingly language, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. 
Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's this hope that that God will someday return to bring salvation. Establishing a rescued people for himself who will live under his rule, under his reign. That's the backdrop when Jesus comes onto the scene in Matthew's gospel account, declaring repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the words of one commentator, it's the story of God taking back his world from us. So you might ask, well, what does that mean? What is that gonna look like when God does that? Which is why I love what follows Matthew 4, 17. If you pick up in verse 18, it says, while walking by the sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. First thing Jesus does after declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand is what? to form a new people, the 12 disciples, pointing back to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, calling them to come under his kingship, under his reign, follow me. This radical turn in direction from everything they've ever known, right? The king having come to rescue a people for himself who will live under his reign, which begs another question, what does the planting of Jesus's flag of kingship look like? He's called this people to himself As you move on into verse 23 of Matthew chapter four, it says this, it says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, from beyond the Jordan. What does Jesus proceed to do after calling the 12? Three things, teaching, proclaiming, and healing, which is really incredible if you look at the layout of Matthew's gospel account because chapters five through seven are going to reflect the teaching and proclaiming aspect of this. They're loaded with red letters. That's what we're gonna study over the next few months. They're all about Jesus' teaching and proclaiming The next chapters that follow the Sermon on the Mount, chapters eight and nine, are all about Jesus healing disease and affliction among the people. Meaning that the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through seven, are a front row seat to Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. If we wanna understand what it means that Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, we get a perfect example recorded in the Sermon on the Mount of what that means. What does the good news of the kingdom look like? The next three months are gonna answer that question. Seeing the crowds, Matthew chapter five, verse one, he went up on a mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, it's as far as we're gonna go this morning. For the next three months, we're gonna sit at the feet of Jesus and the things that he's gonna say will ring forth with resounding authority. 
Same kind of authority with which he said to the 12, follow me. In in other words, what we're going to see over and over again is, is Jesus say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, follow me. You have heard it said, but I say to you, follow me. And and over and over again, topically, categorically, Jesus is going to call us to come under the reign of his kingship, this radical turn from the direction of the kingdom of this world. A couple of takeaways this morning in light of that reality. Number one, if you're not a Christian, we used this illustration before in looking at some of the commands of Scripture and looking at the Ten Commandments themselves, the Old Testament, the Torah, that the Sermon on the Mount functions in a sense like a mirror, When you look in a mirror, a mirror reveals something of who you actually are, the nature of what you truly look like. It reveals ways in which you're unclean, ways in which you're dirty. The Sermon on the Mount will function that way, in a sense. And and the worst thing that you could possibly do in light of that is to then take the mirror, to take the Sermon on the Mount and attempt to use it to clean yourself up to make yourself right with God. That would be as foolish as taking a mirror off of the wall and rubbing your face with it to try to make yourself clean when you see yourself dirty in that mirror. It doesn't work. A mirror is meant to to turn us to the water for cleansing. In this case, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the water so that if you're not a Christian, you're meant to turn to the person and work of Jesus for cleansing. I, I love the way Things unfold in light of the Sermon on the Mount so that the very first thing that you see when Jesus finishes speaking is this. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. When he came down, Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you're not a Christian, that's the right response to the Sermon on the Mount. Notice that as opposed to the religious mindset that would say that lepers must cleanse themselves to touch Jesus, rather, Jesus reaches out and touches the uncleanness of the leper and makes him clean. That's what Jesus does. If if you're not a Christian, the the cry of your heart, I pray, whether it's today or in the weeks to come, if you stick around long enough, would be, Jesus, I cannot make myself clean. My only hope is for you to make me clean. Through your perfect sinless life lived on my behalf, through your sinner's death died on my behalf, through your resurrection conquering sin and death for me. And what I love is that if that's your heart's cry, Jesus says, I'll make you clean. He'll reach out and make you clean. If you are a Christian, I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, which is really just a collection of his sermons on these three chapters of Matthew's gospel account. Lloyd-Jones says this, the Lord Jesus Christ died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. He died. Why? Why? that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works, says the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace. That's that's Titus 2.14 that Lloyd-Jones is quoting. And he goes on to say in this quote, what does Jesus mean? He means that he died in order that I might now live the Sermon on the Mount. He has made this possible for me. 
Like Jesus died so that we might live out the application of this greatest sermon ever preached. We know that because Jesus' final words recorded in Matthew's gospel account, many of you know them well. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here it is, teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. Surely, the, the phrase, all that I have commanded you, must include Jesus' teaching earlier in Matthew's gospel account, right? That would make a lot of sense. So that the Sermon on the Mount is for disciples, baptized followers of Jesus to observe, to keep, to live out. Is Jesus gonna say some really hard things, things that get deep below the surface of our actions to the conditions of our hearts, things that expose our pride and selfish ambitions? As my pop used to say, Cat got a climbing gear, you better believe it. Like Jesus is going to do that over the next three months. Each and every one of us is gonna find something, we're gonna face something within these three chapters to come, something that will make the words follow me hit our minds and hearts as radical. The question is, will you trust him? Same question that our first parents faced in the garden, same question that Israel faced in the wilderness. I think the most dangerous, perhaps most terrifying thing for us in this culturally Christian landscape that we live in is the buying into this idea that we can follow Jesus and yet hang on to our lives of judicial autonomy, our lives of self-determination, that we can have a little of both so that we, we draw the line just in front of us and say, I'm on the good side of that line as it pertains to following King Jesus. And I think Jesus is gonna wreck us a little bit as it pertains to us and present us, make us come face to face with the question, will I truly follow him? Am I truly following him? Am I truly a follower of Jesus Christ? Am I under the reign of his kingship? That, that idea that, that distinction that Jesus can be your savior and not your Lord is so biblically off base. And the Sermon on the Mount is gonna prove that over and over and over again so that the question over the course of the next few months of this series is, will you trust him? Will you follow him? I'll leave you with a quote this morning. You're like, man, this is a short sermon brunch today? Yeah. I can't promise you the rest of this series is gonna be that way. I'll leave you with a quote. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in the closing words of his opening sermon on the greatest sermon ever preached, he says this. He says, if you read the history of the church, you will find it has always been when men and women have taken this sermon seriously and faced themselves in the light of it that true revival has come. And when the world sees the truly Christian man or woman, it not only feels condemned, it is drawn it is attracted. Then Lloyd-Jones says, let us carefully study this sermon that claims to show what we ought to be. Let us consider it that we may see what we can be. For it not only states the demand, it points to the supply, to the source of power. God give us grace, he says, to face the Sermon on the Mount seriously and honestly and prayerfully until we become living examples of it and exemplifiers of its glorious teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, you could say, 
not only exposes our desperate need for a sin-bearing Savior, it most certainly does that, directing our gaze to Mount Calvary over and over again. But it's also true that Jesus died that we might now live the Sermon on the Mount as Christ followers by his grace and by the power of his indwelling spirit, one step in front of the other, leaving our nets daily as Jesus declares, follow me. And so I would ask you this morning, if you're a Christian, where do you hear Jesus declaring those words to you? In this moment of your life, this season of your life, surely if you're a Christ follower, he's constantly declaring those two words to us, right? And so what does that look like? In what way is he saying to you right now in this moment of your life, for you, for your family, whatever that may look like, how is he declaring those words and what does it look like to move towards Jesus? At times, it might be as radical as walking away from the family business. See that with the sons of Zebedee. At other times, it may be a small step in the direction of Jesus from the kingdom of this world and all of its idols that we cling to. Whatever that looks like, I would just put those two words in front of you this morning as we close. If you, if you think of those two words flowing from the lips of Jesus directly to you as a follower of him, follow me, what does that mean today? Sit with that and, and then come back next week and prepare to hear it again. And the week after that, to hear it again. And the week after that, to hear it again. He's gonna continue to say in different words, follow me. Come under the reign of my kingship. And going back to last week, if we have a right understanding of what it means to be under his kingship, we'll see that that is actually to move in the direction of our own joy. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship this great and glorious king whose sermon we're gonna sit with for the next few weeks. We have an opportunity to sing to the king, to sing his praises as we worship collectively through song. We have an opportunity to receive communion, which in this sense is an opportunity to come if you're a Christian and take the bread representing Jesus' broken body and to dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, to pause for a moment and to acknowledge that there's no way we could come under the kingship of Jesus apart from his saving work. So we had to come to the table and receive the elements and declare you're a worthy savior through whom I can now come under the banner of your good and sovereign reign as the king of my life. And in addition, there will be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with and for you on our prayer team. If you'd like prayer, maybe you're wrestling with those words, follow me, and, um, and they sound weighty because they always are and you're not sure what to do with them and you'd just like someone to pray with you, to pray for you to ask God for help to know what it is to, to move more under the, the reign of his kingship, under the banner of his rule. It, it really is a gloriously good rule. And we're gonna see that over the next few months. This series, it's gonna be challenging and rattling. But if, if we will lean in the direction of and, and take heed to those words, follow me week in and week out, by the time we get to the other side of this series, I, I think we're gonna be happier for, for having done it.